Hey everyone, welcome to the AI Education Conversation, where we talk AI, education, and everything in between. I'm Daniel Lopez. As we take this learning journey together, I invite you to join the conversation at the AI Ed Convo on Twitter. Let's jump in. Happy spring, everyone. We made it. This is episode 10, the big one zero. And I wanted to start off today's episode by just saying this is a special one for me. And the reason it's special is because 10 weeks ago, I made the decision to start this journey, start this podcast, really with the goal of creating a space for educators to share their perspectives on AI and for us collectively to learn together. I was super interested in AI, as many of you all know from the first episode and continue to be very interested in AI because of my initial experience with ChatGPT and everything that it just inspired within me. And I just really remember in the initial period after, you know, really just feeling fired up about using ChatGPT and really asking myself if there was a way that I could participate and engage in this field, you know, not having too much context on artificial intelligence at, up to this point and not really knowing anybody that had too much AI experience. And I really remember thinking, oh, I, I, you know, the idea of starting a podcast seems very interesting to me, but I'm also a little bit intimidated by it. And so spent a lot of time watching YouTube videos, really understanding what it takes to create a podcast, editing, content creation, recording, all those things. And when I was watching one episode, I remember that there was this statistic that came up in one of these YouTube videos that I was watching. And, you know, the person who was sharing this, he had said something along the lines of 80% of podcasts never make it past episode seven. And the reason that that really stood out to me is I, when I entered this process and decided to start a podcast, I promised myself, regardless of how it goes, regardless of who listens, I'm, I'm going to make it past seven. And we're at 10 and counting. And so I just wanted to say to everyone listening, you know, if you've been with us since day one, I really appreciate your continued support. Thank you for believing in me, believing in you know, the space that we're creating. And I can't wait to see what, how this experience continues to develop. And if this is your first episode, thank you for your support. Thank you for giving us a listen. And I hope you enjoy this. And, you know, for all of our listeners, I hope that you continue to promote this space. I hope that you feel the Twitter is accessible and, and continue to share your reactions and perspectives to episodes there. And, you know, if you have time, would really appreciate your support to continue to expose the show to better, bigger and better places. So, you're able to rate the show wherever you listen to it, if you're able to give it a review, your endorsement is very much appreciated. So I'm very excited to see where this, you know, this experience continues to go. We've, we've had a chance to talk with amazing people that I never think I would have met before had I not started this journey. And I have so many exciting plans coming up for future episodes that I can't wait to get to in front of you all. And so I just wanted to take a moment and, and say pause, celebrate that small win and say thank you all very much. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Now, with that being said, let's jump on in. In today's episode, what I really wanted to deep dive into is, you know, as we all know, AI has developed so fast in the past two months, and we've been able to hear from some phenomenal voices so far. You know, big shout out to Keith, Spencer, Alex for being some of the first folks to, to come on and have conversations with me. But today, I want us to be able to dig into that a little bit deeper and to ask ourselves, well, what other perspectives across the education landscape? Because there's a lot of us doing a whole lot of different things. You know, can we understand, can we really get a sense of 
how the broader educational community is interacting with and receiving AI. Now, before we really jump into that further, as I always do, I wanted to just share some brief updates today, though I'm committed to making these updates short because I really want to dive into the perspective of educators fully in today's episode. So first and foremost, you know, I've mentioned BARD in a few previous episodes. And for those of you that don't know, BARD is, you know, the chatbot that Google is now developing to compete with the ChatGPT product of OpenAI. BARD initially is being powered by the uh, Lambda model that Google has, their large language model, alongside their search inquiries to be able to power the BARD chatbot. BARD was going through in the last couple of weeks some initial testing, mostly internally with Google staff being able to access and to play around with it and to use it. You all might recall a couple of weeks ago as well, in the initial launch and announcement of BARD, they had a little bit of an oopsie in their their presentation where one of the facts that they highlighted was incorrect. BARD is actually being made publicly available as of last week. So if you're interested in being a playing, uh, being able to play around with it, there is a wait list being distributed. You can de- very easily Google BARD and you'll find it. If you sign up for it, what I've, what I've been seeing is they've been given access to folks pretty quickly. So it seems to be pretty easy to sign up. Would definitely encourage you and invite you to sign up. Play around with it. Ask it some questions and let us know what you think. Give us your reactions, you know, on the AI Ed Combo Twitter. The other thing I wanted to highlight in our quick updates, GPT-4. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I've obviously continued to highlight GPT-4 because it is the thing that everyone continues to talk about right now in the world of AI and how it continues to evolve and develop. GPT-4, it's evolving even further. So as we know, it was released two weeks ago, just for a quick timeline for those of you who haven't been totally scrubbed in here. Two weeks ago, it was released. The thing that made this different from ChatGPT is that it was supposed to be multimodal and you know, fundamentally it was just supposed to be better, right? It was supposed to be more knowledgeable, it was supposed to be more responsive. It was supposed to have less hallucinations. Thus far, some of the reactions that I've seen I'm actually going to be highlighting one of my own case examples in today's episode have, I would say, overwhelmingly been positive and they're continuing to evolve to evolve this further. So GPT-4, they're now going to be adding plugin functionalities where, you know, large companies can actually create uh, plugin extensions using GPT-4. This is going to do two key things for each of those websites and businesses that are adding chat GPT plugins, going to create AI tools, right? Obviously that create an enhanced experience for their users on their particular websites. The second thing that it actually does for OpenAI and GPT-4 is now ChatGPT is going to be able to retrieve information from these online sources, right? Through these third-party websites, it's now going to have access to the internet. The reason that this is a game changer is because up to this point, the GPT-3 and GPT-4 models that have been built They've been built off of that large language model, right? So basically what that means is it has this massive database of information, but that information only changes based on the responses of the users. It doesn't change based off of the information that is uploaded to the internet. This is going to be the first time that ChatGPT and GPT-4 now have access to the internet and have the information and the content from the internet to be able to continue enhance to enhance the information that it has. So that potentially is going to be a big game changer for the quality of responses that we see, the information that we see. We may even see more current information in some of the responses up to prior points. We had saw that a lot of the information that GPT-4 was providing was capped, I think, in, in the year 2021. So it was only things available up to 2021. That's because that was the information set that it had based on the large language model that it was available to it. But now with the Internet, that is going to change. 
So some of the initial plugins, it looks like there's only going to be about 11 plugins initially available during this alpha test. I'm going to share the full announcement on our Twitter so that if you're curious to see some of the organizations that will be a part of those 11 plugins you're able to do. So I saw organizations like Expedia, Kayak, um, Zapier, to name a few, that are going to be a part of that 11 plugin process there. You know, in today's episode, I really wanted, as I said, given that so much continues to develop around AI and updates continue to happen so fast, the tools continue to happen so fast. I think it's time for us to do a check-in. I think we need to check in on all the different groups in our educational landscape, or at least some of the groups in our landscape, and really ask ourselves some key questions. I think we need to take some time to ask ourselves, you know, what has been their experience and, you know, how are they using AI? And I have a couple of different windows today I'd like to share based on information that I found, based on anecdotes and my own experiences around how different groups within education are actually responding to this, this wave of AI that is flushing over the landscape here. So first and foremost, let's start with the biggest group of this constituency, which we all know, which is, well, it's the teachers and the students. Teachers and students, are they actually using AI? And if they are using it, how are they using it? We actually have some more information on some of these questions now. Thanks, thank you very much to a recent survey that was led by Impact Research, and it was actually commissioned by the Walton Family Foundation. This recent survey, it was actually a poll of 1,000 teachers in K-12, and it was 1,000 students ages 12 to 17. So the first thing they found is that most teachers and many students are already actually using ChatGPT. Among the teachers that they polled, 51% of the teachers report using ChatGPT, and they actually found that amongst Black and Latino teachers, they were, there were higher rates of usage, around 69%. They also found that 40% of teachers report using it weekly and 10% 10, 10 report daily usage. I would say generally that those numbers seem to align with the experiences of the two educators we've had thus far. I know that both Keith and, and Spencer have talked about bringing in some tools like ChatGPT either into their classroom or within their day, daily usage. Now, granted, they're some of the early adopters, but I would say generally some of the, the experiences we've had on the show thus far have really aligned with some of this data here. The second key finding that they found is that teachers and students who have used ChatGPT think that it has had a positive impact. 88% of the teachers and 79% of the students who have used it say that it's had a positive, uh, positive impact. So those were the, the percentages associated with, with that statement. I will say that I had a little bit of a question tied to this just because I don't actually really know what positive impact means. Like I, I, I was curious to see if they had any kind of qualitative data associated with this. I couldn't find anything when I was doing research after I had seen the press release and seen some information on the study. But I would just say, generally speaking, if I'm just kind of taking a stab at this and thinking about some of the experiences we've heard about on previous episodes, you know, really referring to my conversation with Spencer and, and Keith in particular in prior episodes, maybe we define positive impact as one of the benefits I know that both of them mentioned is potentially it's a time saver, right? It allows teachers to automate certain tasks and to do things more quickly than they would have been able to do before, which essentially opens up capacity for teachers, which, you know, from that standpoint, I definitely can imagine how a lot of teachers would say, yeah, that's, this, is, this is a good thing for me. This has been positive for me. That being said, I definitely still have some questions about that. But overall, it seems to, you know, what this suggests is that teachers and students overwhelmingly feel like it's a good thing, that it's having a positive impact. 
The next key point that it had shared with us is that teachers are allowing or actively encouraging their students to use ChatGPT. Teachers are nearly four times more likely to have allowed students to use ChatGPT, 38%, than caught them using it without their permission, 10%. And only 15% of students admit to using the program without their teacher's permission. So I've, I found this, this particular statistic to be interesting just because, you know, what they're saying is that, you know, teachers are allowing or actively encouraging their students to use GPT. And really what they took away from that was the ratio, right? That 38% of teachers are allowing students to use uh, chat GPT compared to only 10% that caught them without using it. So that, you know, that ratio is about four times. But what I want to actually lock in on here is teachers allowing students to use it it's only 38%. So I actually would, you know, push back on that a little bit and say that number is actually still objectively low, right? If you're only saying that just under four out of 10 teachers are actually allowing their teachers to use it in the classroom, that's, that's still a little bit low. So a question I guess I would have and, and something to investigate further here is why is it low, right? Or what, maybe what's some of the context here? And I think likely one of the answers or the factors into it is potentially two things. Number one, I wonder if teacher mindset plays a role into this, right? Teachers either feeling resistant to some of these tools, which, you know, some of the earlier data indicates that maybe that's not the case. The second thing could also just be about adoption of this. Like maybe I think chat GPT is a good thing, but I don't know how to bring it into my classroom or I don't really have a clear sense of how students can use it or how to encourage students to use it. I think another potential factor considered within this is, as we know, it's the systematic barriers. There's many school districts, there's many schools that have continued to put restrictions on using tools like ChatGPT in the classroom in the school districts. As we know, the New York City Public Schools ban was one of the first big kind of highlights in this entire conversation. So there's likely a lot of districts that followed suit, though we have seen other districts that have been a lot more open to allowing some of those tools to be in the classroom here. But that's something I think we need to dig into further. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily really launch that as, as one of the, the key points of this year based on the 38% number. And then really one of the last kind of take-home points I wanted to share with you all here, and you know, one of the take-home points from the survey is that they said, for teachers and students, ChatGPT is an example of why we need education to modernize. And really their, their context there is that a clear majority of students, 63% of the students, and teachers, 72%, agree with the following statement. ChatGPT is another example of why we can't keep doing the things the old way for schools in the modern world. I'm going to read that again because I actually think this statement is really important and I personally very much agree with, with this as well. Students and teachers overwhelmingly agree with this statement. ChatGPT is just another example of why we can't keep doing things the old way for schools in the modern world. And I think for me, this highlights everything that is really coming out of the survey that they've commissioned here, right? And what this sample size of a thousand students and a thousand teachers are telling us, which is we can't keep doing things as business as usual in education, right? The world keeps changing. It's rapidly changing. AI is obviously one of the big things that is catalyzing this change here and doing some of that for society. But there's so many other ways that the world continues to change. And I think what this is really signaling for all of us is that you know, us folks in education, and I think uh, those those that we have put in positions of power and, you know, in politics and government who can support education and provide essential funding for it, we can't continue to do things as they've always been. And 
potentially AI poses a greater opportunity to catalyze this process of transformation that I think many of us know education needs to go through, right? It is time for education to transform. And maybe the time is now for us to like really have a conversation and to take actions in a way that it's going to allow it to stick. Thank you very much, Walton Family Foundation and Impact Research for this study. It gives us a good sense of you know, how teachers and students are responding to this. I think we'll continue to uh, place a very close eye on, of course, how teachers and students continue to adopt these things. The second one I, I wanted to highlight is actually my own personal experience using GPT-4 this, this following week. And as many of you know, I very much identify as a college access professional. I'm very close with many counselors out there, many folks who are in the work of supporting students with applying, being accepted to, matriculating, and ultimately having a successful ex experience in a post-secondary institution in college. And I wanted to share a quick story with you all that I had last week that very much inspired this pressure test project that I did using GPT-4 that I actually think might be giving us a good sense of what counselors might be thinking as it relates to some of these tools. So I recently shared this story on one of the largest Facebook groups related to college admissions professionals. This group has like over, you know, 20,000 people in it. All of these folks, again, college counselors, admissions officers, folks related to kind of the college access and persistence timeline. And the reason that this story was inspired is I was recently at one of the schools that I support as a part of my work with One Goal, you know, one of our partner schools. And I was there one day just visiting a classroom and alongside one of my colleagues, what I was doing is advising very small groups of seniors through a very, very important part of their college making decision. You know, so for a lot of seniors right now, they have to make a decision in the next four weeks for where they want to go to school. And a big part of that for many students, especially the students that we serve, which are mostly first generation low income students, is analyzing the financial aid award letters, right? They have to have a sense of what it's going to cost to go to some of the schools that they've been accepted to, what kind of money that they've been provided on their financial aid letter, and be able to compare all of those letters. So I was working with a small group of, of students, and I was, as I was doing this, I was working with one student in particular. And, you know, this student, she was really excited about the institution that she had been accepted to. Uh, she shared with me that her goal and intention was to, you know, matriculate to this institution. And, you know, my response was great. Well, let me see your financial aid letter. You know, we'll take a look and we'll make sure that you understand and you can share this with your, your parents as well so that, you know, you all can make this happen. And so, you know, she pulls out the letter. I'm looking at the letter. You know, most of the time they'll have a breakdown of the cost of attendance of the school along with any grants, scholarships, usually loans, work study, those types of things that they're offering the student um, are kind of all in the same letter. So I'm taking a look at this letter, and what I realize is, you know, the cost of attendance of this school is approximately about $50,000, and they're giving this, this student about $23,000 of grants and scholarships, and then they're giving her the typical uh, $5,500 in loans, you know, from the federal government, the subsidized and unsubsidized loans that she's eligible to take out for that. So it's leaving her in a hole of about, you know, just over $20,000, closer to $25,000 that she's going to have to pay annually to be able to go to this school. And so I started asking her, I'm like, well, do you, so when you completed your, your FAFSA, you know, your, your application to be able to become eligible for federal aid in, you know, the United States, uh, normally that, that when you complete that application, there's going to pump out a number to, uh, to you called an expected family contribution, which essentially gives you and your family a sense of how much you're expected to pay. You know, so I asked her, I was like, when you and your, your family did the FAFSA, what was your EFC? What was that number? 
And she's like, I'm not really sure, but I know that, you know, we can't pay a lot of money to go to school. And granted, this is a school community where most of the students who are attending the school are first generation low income students. And so I asked her, I was like, okay, so, you know, we're walking through each of these steps in the letter. I'm kind of explaining to her what it means. You know, we're walking through and we're having a dialogue. And then towards the end, I'm like, so you, you know, you're understanding that through this letter, it really means that your family is going to have to pay about $25,000 a year for you to be able to attend the school. Do you think that that's something that, you know, is going to be affordable to you and your family? Have you, have you talked at all with your family about their ability to support you in, in college? And her response to that was, you know, I think they can help a little bit, but I don't think that they're going to be able to help that much. And I can tell in that moment, she was like having this epiphany that unfortunately she hadn't had up to that point, which was she was starting to realize she was really excited about this. But then some of the maybe the shame of not having a concrete option in her back pocket. She was feeling, I think, maybe a little bit overwhelmed and a little bit defeated, right, about some of the information that I sell. And it was really hard for me to, you know, have this conversation with her, but I did not want to set unrealistic expectations with her about her situation. I mean, if she decided to attend this school, she was going to have to pay potentially $100,000 over four years to go to this college. And I mean, I couldn't, in good faith, recommend any student attend that institution with the financial aid package that I saw if their family wasn't able to significantly contribute to that or unless she had, you know, some type of outside scholarships or things like that in her back pocket. And, you know, as we were having this conversation, kind of unearthing that she didn't. You know, we walked through that. We talked about some next steps. I was able to set her up with a process to appeal financial aid. This was a private institution. And oftentimes in my experience, private institutions, they have a little bit more institutional funding that they're able to get to usually give back to students if they know you're interested in attending so we worked through an appeal letter. We got that submitted. We walked through some of the next steps, you know, but I definitely walked out of that class period after that class period had ended, just feeling really defeated as well. And, and, I, and it really stuck with me. And I then started to have a conversation with the teacher who was, you know, supporting the students in the in this class. And, and they had also just kind of alluded to me that it had been really tough supporting students this year. And one of the biggest challenges they've had is, you know, they were down two counselors since the start of the year. So folks had left. I mean, they had, you know, with with the those two counselors leaving, that ultimately led kind of like the head guidance counselor and someone kind of like in a partnerships, college career manager type role that they had to support a school of 500 students. I mean, that's just not sustainable. That's not, you're not going to be able to provide quality advising and support for students when you have like two people supporting a caseload of 500 students. So I, I you know, in that moment, I, I felt very defeated and for a student, but I also had tremendous compassion for the school, I know that they were working through a tough time. I've heard across the board at so many of the schools that I serve that just continuing to attract and retain staff with so many of the challenges that happen in a school that has just been very challenging. So, you know, naturally, obviously, this experience really got me thinking, like, I wonder if AI could have helped in this situation. Like, is there a way right now where there is literally only two people supporting students at this school today with making one of the biggest decisions they they've, are going to make in their life up to this point, is there a way that AI can help? So what I ended up doing is that I, I ended up pressure testing GPT-4. You know, I created my account. I already have an account with ChatGPT, but I noticed that with GPT, they do have access to now that GPT-4 model on there. So I was able to kind of uh, interact with, you know, the, the, the quote unquote smartest model that they have. And so I set up a couple of initial questions. And I also want to preface this, that if you want to see all of the screenshots with the conversations that I have, this entire case study I posted on our Twitter as well. So please take a look. I think it's a very interesting case study. And basically what I did is I walked through essentially my exact conversation with the student with this AI bot. And I was curious, like if the AI bot was providing the financial aid advising 
And I was the student. If I was the, the student who really didn't have much context and for the very first time was trying to understand, could it actually explain it to me? Could it actually, with me asking questions, could we work through it together? And could it actually, could this AI bot actually teach me what this award letter meant? Could it explain to me how much I was going to owe? Could it explain to me what my free money was? Can it explain to me the conditions of my loans? Uh, could it help me with any next steps so that if, you know, if there was anything I can do to increase my financial aid package or accept it, could it help me understand that? It, the dialogue was about 10 to 12 questions. All of the screenshots are there. We went through this role play scenario and I shared all of those responses in this Facebook group, this Facebook group of folks who do this every single day across the country, across the world. And I wanted to just share with you some of the responses that they had, because I think this gives us a pretty good sense of how folks are reacting to this, right? As they're learning more for the very first time of how these tools might be helped. These were some of the most common reactions that were coming up. Wow. Wow. Pretty much spot on. Wow. Pretty much the exact conversation I had with the student today. Was my phone recording it? That's pretty phenomenal. Looks like some folks are going to be out of the job in a year or two. And actually that, that, that last comment was liked by about 20 people. So that was a little bit awkward. I hope that that doesn't happen, but apparently there was something there that resonated with folks. And then the last one, and really this is what, what I'm hoping from this entire experience, which is the prospect of more kids getting the guidance they need is wonderful. And that's really my, was my intention and, in, you know, pressure testing this as well. I would say overall, I mean, when I went through this, this experience and, and this project, I would say that I generally shared the same sentiment. When I was doing this, I said, you know what? This isn't a hundred percent, you know, as quality as it could be compared to like a very seasoned counselor who, who's going through it and knows the drill. Uh, but I was actually very surprised about how, how good it was. I mean, it, it was sharing very accurate information in my experience for how students need to understand things in particular, like the conditions of the loans when it was talking to me about the subsidized Stafford loans versus the unsubsidized, I thought it brought up very much like the relevant key points that students were going to need to know to be able to really understand the, the conditions of some of those loans. So I was actually very surprised by how thoughtful and concise some of the responses were and how it logically and cohesively walked walk walk me through it step by step. You know, of course, I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily in, in today's current you know, iteration of these tools agree with that comment around some folks being out of the job in the year or two. And I think the reason why is, is you know, it's, it's that classic analogy of the cook versus the cookbook. If you hand a recipe to two different people, somebody who maybe has been cooking for the last two to three months and somebody who is, you know, a, a professional chef who's been cooking for 15 years, same recipe with the same steps, with the same ingredients, and they produce relatively the same thing. You know, my if I had to bet money, I'm betting money that the person with 15 years of experience who's been doing it a lot longer is going to taste better and there's going to be things there that over their years of experience, they've been able to, you know, get down correctly, right? Maybe the, the ingredients go a certain way, but maybe there's a certain flip in between that they just know to do. Maybe there's a certain way they whisk things together or, you know, uh, base the, the protein or something like that. And I think very much it works this way in education as well, right? There's a lot of great information that ChatGPT shared and it was very helpful but sometimes as an educator, when students are giving you like half information, you just kind of know when to probe, you know when to ask guiding questions, you know when to share an example or a story that very much relates to how they're feeling in that moment. And those are, those are skills and tools that you gain over a career. Now, that being said, we're obviously in a little bit of a crisis situation right now across education in particular and, you know, uh, lower performing, higher need schools where 
they might actually need some of these tools in their current state to be implemented sooner because they don't have anybody to be able to walk through these experiences with students or their, their personnel is very limited to what it should be. And in those particular situations, though there's probably a lot more work that needs to be done to really pressure test these tools and the policies with it, I do feel a sense of, of urgency to provide some scaffolded experiences and some of these tools for you know, educators in that position sooner rather than later, because you know, the, the fallout of not doing it is students not getting the advising and the support that they need to make one of the biggest decisions they need to make in their life. And I know that that happens, unfortunately, all the time across and students fall through the crack across our public education system. Um, but that doesn't mean it should be acceptable. And that's not doesn't mean that's the standard we should hold. I think if there's opportunities to support students and to really support the teachers at schools that are continuing that good fight and really continuing to serve students, even though they're being asked to wear multiple hats, we need to try to equip them with some of the knowledge and the know-how with some of these tools so that maybe they can expand their some of their capacity. They can use these tools as a supplement to support students in individual situations while they're trying to do some of that work as well. So I wanted to leave you with that one. I thought that was a very interesting case study that I was able to pressure test this week. And a lot of folks seem to, it struck a chord across some of my social medias that as I was sharing this with, with folks. And I hope you get a chance to take a look at some of those screenshots. Share with me your reactions. What do you think about that case study? Are you noticing something that I didn't catch? And the, you know, the, really the last window I want to open, open here is, you know, it's our higher ed one. In particular, the question I'm curious about is, you know, how's higher ed adapting to AI? I think we've all heard, you know, about those initial outbreak of concerns, you know, across the media and some of the articles that came out initially. There was so much around the, the concerns of plagiarism, right? In particular, around higher ed plagiarism. Then there was an investment in these like AI and, uh, detection tools that were coming out. Then we also saw some great examples of folks who were implementing uh, AI policies within their syllabi within some of their procedures, folks like, you know, Ethan Mollick at UPenn. But I was curious, like, if we dig a little bit deeper beyond that, what's what's happening in there right now? Again, let's check in with our folks on the higher end side. What else is there to share or check in on? And so I wanted to share a little bit of an update on this front. And in particular, I found this very interesting white paper uh, written by Dr. Adam Fine out of the University of North Texas called How Academia is Adapting to Generative AI, which is essentially, as we know, tools like ChatGPT. And you know, of course, I'll share this link on the Twitter as I do with all of our resources so that you can read. It's a really great, interesting read. You know, Dr. Fine, he's sharing the perspectives, his own perspectives, but he's also sharing perspectives from three higher education leaders out of the area, Dr. Stephen Crawford of Maricopa Community Colleges, Dr. Brian Arnold of National University, and Dr. Jeffrey Alexander of the Truckee Meadows Community Colleges, in addition to, again, some of his own predictions. So some of my big takeaways from the white paper uh, and that gave me some helpful context as to how some folks in higher ed may be uh, continuing to react to this. All three of the education leaders that were interviewed, they, they shared similar perspectives around that initial impact. And what I mean by that is that they think that it's the, some of this wave of AI is continuing to lead to ongoing conversations with like all of the stakeholders that encompass uh, an insti- a higher education institution, right? From your deans to your your professors, to some of the student support folks, to all of the more logistical personnel there. And everybody right now, it sounds like, are having conversations, some of these quote-unquote brown bag conversations, as Dr. Stephen Crawford said in his particular response. And so I think right now, a lot of it is just continued dialogue, continued conversations. I know I've said this multiple times on the podcast, I'll continue to say this. I think that 
in particular this upcoming summer. It's going to be really big across higher education as well as K-12, whereas we know that's a really big season for planning dialogue and adoption across education. So I think that that's going to continue to ramp up as we get into the warmer months here. They also mentioned that in particular, not only are they having conversations to understand the degree in which their institutions might leverage AI tools, the big area that they continue to dig on further is assessments and assignments. So much of AI, in particular for higher ed, is prone, and, and those students are going to know how to use it, right? With very little support, you know, being in higher education, they're going to be able to bypass a lot of the, the difficulty and some of the, the assessments and assignments as they're created. So this has been something that they have really locked in on as something that they feel like needs to change across the field. They also advise that um, higher ed education institutions, so the, you know, they were offering their advice at this particular point to other institutions. And they said one of the best things that other institutions could be doing is just providing many opportunities for faculty administration to talk about the implications and really adopting what they like to call a partnership mindset, right? So really asking themselves the question across the board, like if assuming AI was our partner, like how can we partner with tools like AI to embrace new ways of doing, right? So really taking and holding that mindset in particular as well as they talked about these conversations, they were also talking about how do you get really key levers in the implementation process for the higher education invested in this process so they can support with the transition? I saw a couple of folks, uh, most notably naming librarians. They said librarians were huge during that initial wave of internet adoption in higher ed a couple, a few decades ago, I should say. And librarians were played a really critical role in helping you know the internet search engines to in universities to adopt to that. Maybe there's a role for librarians to very much help us to navigate the AI tool adoption in higher education at this time as well. So I thought that was really interesting as well, being able to identify really key stakeholder groups that might actually be your, your levers in this particular moment as we continue to implement. And then in the closing of this white paper, Dr. Fine actually starts to share some of his predictions for how he thinks generative AI is going to continue to evolve. Prediction number one, he thought generative AI is going to obviously evolve academic integrity policies. I mean, I think this is obviously the low-hanging fruit. We've already seen that this was going to have to change. There was no way that um, academic integrity policies around plagiarism were going to be able to look exactly how they look right now with the wave of the last couple of months we've seen with these tools. So, you know, a lot of institutions initially began investing in AI detection technology. Like we saw a lot of articles of uh, schools doing that. But I think what he's predicting is that Schools aren't going to view that as a holistic solution, right? Institutions are likely going to be looking for a way to overhaul all of their academic and technology, uh, technology policies. And again, we've seen signs of this already. So I very much know that, you know, this is a prediction he's making, but I do think this is the one that's very much happening in real time already. You know, fine. He also mentions that he believes curriculum is going to involve curriculum design, learning objectives. And this point I found really, really interesting um, what he had said is that he thinks that professors and institutions, they're going to have to shift more towards formative assessments instead of summative assessments. And really what he means by formative assessments is assessments that focus, focus more on checking for understanding along the way, more uh, timely process-based exams, like how it, tell us more about your process to get to A versus the end goal itself, right? Just because of you know how these things have shaped up thus far. You know, from my perspective, that makes a lot of sense. I think we've heard examples already of some of the teachers that have come on on the K-12 side where essentially that's kind of how they've thought about it, right, is using AI to focus more on the process, have conversations about the process. So it makes sense that 
now find some of the other higher ed leaders in, you know, in the white paper are thinking about this as well, how the overall experience for higher education may actually be one that focuses more on formative assessments in the future for students across the board. And then lastly, he mentions that he thinks AI is going to continue to evolve and they are going to continue to evolve uh, to the point where they're adopting AI tools related to student success, right? So universities are going to be adopting more tools um, that actually support students, you know, with persistence and retention once they attend the university. We've already showcased some of those tools that could be really helpful. You know, examples of that would be like tools that we've mentioned before around like Quill. Um, I know now that tools like Quizlet, Khan Academy have also added AI functionality. So there's going to be a lot of organizations out there that kind of like make their make their play to become premier tools. Likely what, what may also happen is that a lot of the current tools that higher education institutions already partner with. I would imagine that even learning management systems such as Blackboard, right, which is very popular schools, maybe they end up adding AI integration tools in the future. Overall, what Fine is mentioning there is why he thinks this is going to happen. And, and again, this is as what we already know is AI has a tremendous uh, speed of feedback and capacity for personalization, which is one of the big reasons why this may ultimately end up being a good thing. So overall, I mean, as we're looking at the paper that Dr. Fine published here with the support of those higher education leaders, I think these windows and, you know, so in addition to just that higher education window, I think what all of these windows show us is that there still exists this spectrum of early adopters, folks who have really caught on and have a positive experience using tools like ChatGPT and AI. But as we also know, and again, I think we've heard uh, some of anecdotes around this from, from Spencer, from Keith, from others as well, that there continues to be this, this group of non-adopters as well, right? And I think everybody's kind of going to kind of get there at their own time in terms of learning about some of these tools across the different groups that make up education. I do think everyone is talking about how AI can be used and where it makes sense. And those conversations continue to take place. Like I said, I think what makes this conversation challenging also is the fact that these tools, they're developing at a very rapid pace. So we're having a conversation about a, a landing point, a launch point that continues to move. We're trying to build out for a des destination that we're not even 100% sure where it exists yet. My best guess, though, is that this summer is going to be a very interesting one. Um, I do think that this is going to be one of the most lively planning periods we've had across education, you know, really since the pandemic started. So I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of what happens there. Uh, all right. So what other stories or data have you seen about how our education community is responding to this wave of AI? Share your thoughts, share your reactions, share your stories with me on the AI Ed Convo on Twitter. And with that being said, thanks again for tuning in for our very special episode number 10. Thanks for supporting this journey. And I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.